You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Quick word before we get into today's show. I am recovering from a cold. I've barely just regained the use of my voice. Terrible sore throat. Um, couldn't even talk. But I've been meaning to get this episode out for the last few days and wasn't able to because I needed to record this intro and outro for the episode. So bear with me as I struggle through it. Brevard County may not be a well-known name outside of Florida, but its impact and influence to the surf world at large is vast. Much of it is directly influenced by the aerospace industry. In 1948, the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station was opened, and in 1968, NASA's Kennedy Space Center was opened. This industry recruited tens of thousands of the nation's brightest minds from a wide array of disciplines, many of whom were young and just starting families, So you see Florida surf boom really start to happen with the kids being born in those next two generations, Kelly Slater among them. Canaveral Port services one of the largest cruise ports in the entire world, and it brings in much of the goods that service Disney World's economy. The port has contributed half a billion dollars annually to Brevard County's economy. The county deserves a very thorough telling of its surf history, and I probably should do that, but on this trip, I was only there for two days. As I spoke to people, Matt Keckley namely, he gave me a long list of important board builders, retail shop owners, community leaders that I should be speaking with. I actually have a few more episodes with different Brevard County personalities that I'll be releasing in the upcoming weeks, but I think that Ricky Carroll is a great starting point. Firstly, because in much of his story, he pays homage to Florida's founding figures, a real testament to Ricky's humility. So that helps create a historical context. And then secondly, Ricky's a great starting point because he has become an iconic figure in his own right. And the volumes of boards that he's built in the past few decades has been fundamental in setting up a supply chain for board building materials to be brought into the region and made available on a daily basis and therefore make it available for other people to get into board building. Ricky's a fascinating and humble figure. He's originally from New York, which is a little known fact, but he's certainly synonymous with Florida at this point. He is the three-time winner of the Icons of Foam shaping competition at the boardroom show. You will not find him to be very verbose on social media. However, there is a great article in USA Today in October of 2017 that I think says a lot about Ricky. It tells the story of one Bud Gardner, who has been building boards since 1966. In 1981, he was caught up in the Superman film craze, So he built a single fin and then painted the Man of Steel in full flight mode on the bottom of the board. The artwork turned out so well that he allowed a friend to display it in his retail shop window in Miami. Two days later, the board was stolen, never to be seen again. That is, until July 2017. 36 years later, Gardner got a surprise email from a stranger named Aaron Torlett who had reached out to Gardner by researching the name of the laminate on the surfboard and was just hoping to get more information about the board. 
When Gardner explained that the board was stolen, Torlette insisted on returning it. The only issue was Torlette was in Maine and Gardner was in Florida. Gardner looked into shipping, but it was out of his budget. Turns out he was friends with Ricky Carroll, who happened to be planning a delivery run up the East Coast. Almost as amazing as this board resurfacing after 36 years is the fact that Lieutenant Aaron Hayden of the Maine State Police actually drove 90 miles, a three hour round trip, to meet Ricky at the surf shop where he was delivering surfboards and then hand off this Superman board. Ricky then drove the board all the way down to Florida, delivered it to Gardner, who then told the press, quote, I may never know how my board ended up traveling more than 1,500 miles up the coast or how many surfers ever rode it, but I'm just happy to have it back. There are so many superheroes who are responsible for its return, and I am very grateful. I guess when it comes to Superman, there is definitely something to be said about truth, justice, and the American way, end quote. I've got photos of Gardner with his newly returned board on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You're unlikely to hear Ricky Carroll mention a word about his role in this good deed, but I have a link to the article also on my website. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Ricky Carroll. Uh, Dad was in the Air Force. Okay. Moved to uh, Japan as a kid. Lived there for three years. Holy cow. Discovered surfing in Hawaii when we went there for a vacation when I was seven years old. (laughs) Wow. Moved back to the East Coast, and then when he retired, he moved to Florida. What, um, What was that first experience in Hawaii when you were seven? What did you see? Where were you? Who did you see? We were visiting friends of my parents, and they had a seven-foot styrofoam surfboard that you put battens in, wooden battens in it to make it rigid enough to where you could stand up on it. I had a broken arm, full cast on my left arm from wrist to shoulder at the time. And my brothers and sisters were getting pushed into waves, and I was sitting on the beach wanting to be out there and my mom put a garbage bag over my cast and taped it up and I went surfing for the first time. It's on the east side of Hawaii, one of the the bays they have over there. The reason we came to Florida was Patrick Air Force Base was a naval air station back in the day. My dad actually joined the Navy first and he wanted to fly and then he couldn't get what he wanted in the Navy, and then he went into the Air Force. But he was stationed down here at Patrick Air Force Base, and when he, living down here for a few years, he told himself, when I retire, this is where I want to live. Got it. So that's how I ended up in Florida. When you showed up here, um, were you an active surfer? No. Um, after you know trying it and seeing it in Hawaii, we moved to Cape Cod, to Air Force Base there, Probably went to the beach a couple times, you know, it was cold, didn't surf. I didn't actually really start surfing until we moved to Florida. Okay. Back then, you know, I didn't know much about the board building and stuff, but, I, you know, it was 1970, you know, so the guys were Dick Catree, you know, Gary Proper, those guys, even Crawford, and those guys were a lot younger, so they were kids at the time, mm. you know. So um, those, you know, Claudia College, and those were the... the the surfers of the era then 
when I started. When did you become interested in board building? Pretty quick. Um, my mom bought us a used surfboard at a garage sale for $10. Wow. And that was the board that I have two brothers and one sister, and we all shared it. My younger brother didn't take to it that much. My sister didn't, you know, she was younger, she didn't go out that much. So my older brother and I started using it more and more. And then we moved to Satellite Beach after about a year of living in Cape Canaveral. You know, and there's rocks out here and, and reef compared to Cocoa Beach where it's just sand, sand bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he would go out a lot more and I'd sit on the beach and not go out as much. And I'd have to wait for him to, uh, you know, be done surfing before I could get to port. Right. And I would ride my bike to the beach uh, down the street that I live on right now, actually. Oh, wow. And uh, there was a, a house there across the street from where I live where they had a carport. And I would see this girl in there working on boards, like doing some ding repair and stuff like that. And then one day I was riding by and I heard the planer going and I saw that she was shaping a board in a carport. Hmm outside of the house and I stopped and I watched her shape an entire board uh, I thought to myself I was 13 years old I could do that I could just make my own surfboard hmm. and it wasn't too long after that I found a broken longboard on the beach that was somebody had just discarded it was half in the trash and half on the beach and I took the nose half home stripped all the fiberglass off of it went to Ace Hardware and got a sure form and shaped myself a surfboard. Wow. So it was 13 in 1973 that I decided to make my first board. You said you were 13? Yes. Wow. Okay, so that first board that your mom got at the garage sale, do you remember who shaped it and what it, was the design of the board? It was a single fin, probably about a 7274 board, but it was a no name board. It was a homemade board. Okay. It had no name on it. Very crude looking board. I learned a little bit about resin and ding repair before I even made my first report just trying to keep that board watertight you know mm -hmm. so we'd go you know found out about resin and fiberglass and even my dad helped me you know patch the dings on the boards just that, that we were riding just to keep it going. It's interesting as I've talked to a different board builders the last few days um, the materials are available because of boat the boat building industry. Right. And then there seems to be a kind of craftiness or just a engineer kind of awareness because of that aerospace industry. Right. People's dads are engineers or whatever. And so kids grow up with a understanding of how to build things and the desire to build things. Right. It's a unique yeah. little microcosm that's happening. Yeah. I have a funny story about building my first surfboard. Yeah. You know, after shaping it well then I knew I had to glass it so I would go back by that house and, and the, the girl that was shaping the surfboard was Marianne Hayes um, okay. she's in the East Coast Hall of Fame she's a really good surfer and she was just making her own boards okay. and uh, so she had another guy who helped her glass and stuff and I went up by and I watched watched them build a few boards and said I could do this and I remember being in Ace Hardware that was about a mile from my house and seeing that they had they had rolls of fiberglass 
and boat resin and hardener and stuff and pigments for sale you know for not for really for board builders more for boat repair and stuff mm -hmm. like that but you could buy yards of glass you know right off the roll mm -hmm. and so I went there and I bought my fiberglass stuff first and a couple pigments and uh, I brought it home and, you know mowed some lawns got some more money you know the board building process was over about a month's time it wasn't like I just went and shaped a board and built it and wrote it it, it wow. took a while to get the money together to do so and so when I was ready to start glassing it, I rode up to, on my bicycle, to get the resin. And it was a nice hot summer day. And uh, I went in to buy the resin, and the guy who was working there at the, at the hardware store said, you know, you have to put this hardener into the resin to make it work, and I can't sell you the hardener because you're not 18 years old. And they wouldn't sell me. I said, well, how do I make it dry? And he goes, well, are you going to use it soon when you get back? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go back and glass my board. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. He opened up the can. It was one of those little pint cans of resin. And he squirted the hardener in there out of the little tube and said, when you get home, just mix it up and then use it, and it'll harden. And I'm like, okay. Rode home on my bicycle about a mile away. I got home. I grabbed a hold of the metal can out of my basket, and it was like, wow, it's getting hot. And when I opened that up, if you've ever seen resin thermal cure and volcano out smoke and start popping and cracking, that's what it was doing. Oh, like no. here in the middle of my mom's carport, I'm almost burning her house down. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, I'm 13 years old. I'm crying, you know, I'm not going to be able to glass my surfboard. I just spent the only money I had to buy that resin. Yeah. So uh, my mom, you know, came out and saw what was going on. And after we decided that we weren't going to burn the house down, we, uh, she goes, well, I'll take you back up there. So she drove me up there. And the guy, you know, apologized and stuff, but he, he said, you know, uh, I'll sell you the resin and the hardener, but your mom has to, you know, watch you do this and he showed me how much to put in and stuff so then I went back and you know glassed the first side on my board <laughs> that's hilarious was would that um would his plan have worked if you didn't jostle it on your bicycle I would I don't even just adding think it so in there with resin it starts to activate yeah. immediately you know it was a terrible by, plan yeah <laughs> <laughs> I guess he thought it would work but it sure didn't I mean, the bike ride definitely didn't help the no, situation, right. but it was still a terrible plan from the beginning. Uh, what did you shape? What board was that? It was like, uh, if you can imagine a nose of a longboard broken, it was probably like five foot of board. Okay. And I just kind of pointed the nose a little bit. It was right in that twin fin era where twin fins were really getting popular. And then I just kind of rounded the tail off, you know, it was just all shaped by hand in a shirt form. So it was kind of like a little egg looking board. Okay. And I even made my fins out of the leftover foam and then glassed them and then glassed them on the board and made a twin fin. Wow, interesting. Uh, did it work? You know, at 13, it's hard to say. Good point. I, I wish I had it, you know, it was uh, one of those things when I was ready to make another board. At first, I wanted to sell it, but you know, some of my friends were riding it and stuff. And then, um, we we actually um, 
made a surf sacrifice on the beach with it and burned it in a oh fire. My gosh. <laughs> well, that's a good story, at least. Did your dad expect you to go into his line of work, or was he okay with you going into board building? Uh, definitely, he was not okay with board building. It's, you know, he always wanted me to go in the service. That was, you know, the thing. My older brother went into the Navy and served for 20 years and retired, and, you know, he was always, you know, on me, like, you know, what are you going to do, what are you going to do? My big interest as I started getting into junior high and high school was cars. I was interested in cars. My dad did a lot of his own mechanic work. So I took auto mechanics in school, in high school, and it was kind of like a good thing for me for my surfing because with auto mechanics you get two hour classes sometimes and the teacher would let you go out on test drives. We would actually go surfing <laughs> during uh-huh. school. <laughs> When we, and we were not supposed to be in auto mechanics, right. and we had passes to get off of, of school because we were in auto mechanics. Like mo- at, back in the day when I went to high school, you weren't allowed to leave the grounds without a, your parents or permission, even though you drove your own car there. Mm-hmm. You know, they just didn't let you do that. Yeah. And, but if you were in auto mechanics, you had permission to drive off the grounds. <laughs> so it worked well, and that's what I was going to do. I was going to be an auto mechanic. I was pretty uh, up on it and I got hired from a local dealership in my senior year of high school and I went into the work program and I didn't even do my senior year of high school I actually graduated in the work program by going to work wow and then when did you transition into board building what had happened was uh, all along the time through high school, probably from about 70, even right out of junior high school, I started surfing in the ESA. And the ESA, the Eastern Surfing Association, they would have the East Coast Surfing Championships in Cape Hatteras. And I had gone up there uh, a few times before getting the job. And when I got the job, I was only working for less than a year, and the ch- championships were coming up. And I asked if I could have time off to go surf the East Coast championships, and my boss wouldn't give me the time off. So I quit <laughs> my job, drove up there, surfed in the East Coast championships, came back, and got a job at another car dealership as a mechanic. And the same thing happened a year later. <laughs> Like, I wasn't there a year, long enough to get the time off to go to the East Coast Championship, so I was, I was forced to quit again. Wow. <laughs> so I could go surf. That's and uh, uh, it was in that time frame that um, I had been building boards all along just for myself and some for friends. It was just a hobby for me. I wasn't, I wasn't even considering board building a career. It was just something I did. It was a hobby, you know, something fun to do. The boards you were riding in competition were those years. Most of them were. Okay. Yeah, cool. there was, there was a time where I started getting you know more competitive, and I actually started um, looking at other boards. I bought a Catree board. I rode this Catree fish when I was in the juniors division, and then still rode my board here and there. And then I got um, picked up, sponsored by the. A company called Quiet Flight Surfboards are still around here in Florida, and uh, so I rode for them for a little while, still building my own boards on the side. But you know, started having to ride their boards in competition, and uh, it was uh, Chris Birch, who was a shaper here, who worked for Natural Art. 
he was up at the East Coast Championships, and I knew him from school and stuff. He grew up in satellite, and he was telling me about, you know, a position at Natural Art Surfboards that they needed a polisher. And I was already doing some ding repair for them because my friend Bob Roman worked for them, and he would go in at night at the factory, and he would do hot coating and fins and he'd do ding repair and he just couldn't keep up with it. So I was going with him to the factory and just helping him. I wasn't an employee. Nobody knew I was there, but I'd already been kind of going to that factory. And then when Chris told me that there was a polishing position and opened up at the factory, I was like, oh, maybe I'll do that, you know. So I told my dad that I was going to go make surfboards for a living and he, he about lost it. He, Did he? Yeah. He, I remember his quote was, I, you know, you're throwing your life away. Wow. <laughs> like, he was totally against it. Wow. Did he ever come around to it? And he did, you know, as I got kind of going with natural art and stuff, and he saw that I was making a living and I was actually, you know, buying a house and, and you know, coming along, he, he, he kind of, you know, took to it and accepted it, I guess. He wasn't, you know. Yeah begrudged about it but uh, the only unfortunate part was when I started my own business and actually started to get um, any notoriety in in the industry and stuff you know he would already passed so right he didn't get to see you know what I was able to accomplish with it right I it's on the West Coast um, certainly during that era surfers were frowned upon, you know, is looked at, right. at just like Jeff Spicoli, stoners yeah. who don't want to work. And it's funny to think of that in this context because so much of um, the adults at that time were from the space program right. or the military, so very kind of, you know, short haircuts, right. button-up shirt, right. like exactly. all of the exact opposite of the surf culture. So right. I could see that being a problem. Sure. It's like, you know, it was just, you know, he just thought it was a... Uh, a hobby that he was okay with me surfing but yeah. you know like to make a career out of it, he didn't see that when I first started I didn't see it as a career either it was just something to do sure yeah exactly um, so you were working for natural art doing the polishing yeah I started as polisher and just doing your own label on the side for yourself no I wasn't really um, I would do a few ports here and there you know and then it wasn't till I remember was one of the same thing East Coast Championships coming up and I wanted a, a new longboard and I had been riding this old uh, Rick surfboards Rick James board and I broke the nose off of it and I was like you know what I'm gonna strip this down and reshape it so I did it and glassed it there at Natural Art and it was when Pete Dooley who owned Natural Art seen that I'd shaped the board, and he was like, you shaped this? And I'm like, yeah. You know, he just thought I was just a polisher. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't know that I even made boards. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me the shot to uh, start shaping the C-shaped line of surfboards that he had. So myself and Bob Roman actually started shaping at the same time, and we were actually kind of competing against each other, and we were always competitive anyways in school and competitive in surfing. And so it got to be kind of an issue and Pete Dooley decided to start another line of surfboards and he called them pro shapes surfboards okay. so Bob got to shape the pro shape surfboards 
and I stayed on with the, the C-shaped surfboards. Got it. And then as time went on, I know Greg Lohr was one of the shapers and Rich Price was with the other shaper for National Art. Greg Lohr had moved on and Rich was really starting to get a name for himself and have a lot of pro surfers riding for him and stuff. And that was in that time when longboards were just kind of coming back in. You know, they'd gone away for quite a time and they were just starting to come back in. And he didn't want to shape them or the fun boards. So I got to shape, you know, some of the natural art longboards and fun boards early on and then kept doing that, you know, as much as Rich didn't want to do it, I did it. Yeah. Was there an opportunity for you just to make a career there, or why did you transition out into Ricky Carroll surfboards? Um, I was there for 14 years, you know, and the the thing that kind of made me start thinking about doing my own thing was, you know, I could have had a career there. I did see that Rich Price, as long as he was there, I was always going to be under him, and he was always going to get first choice and first crack at everything. So. That was one of the reasons, but more of the reasons that we were going through that was that um, early 90s recession after the 80s were just booming, 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 and you, we couldn't build enough surfboards of natural art. We were making more board, you know, 4,000 boards a year, and we couldn't make enough of them. And at the end of the 80s, in the early 90s, we went to that recession that really hit a lot of people hard. And even natural art, you know, fell under hard times and was having a hard time making their payroll, making their bills. And it was turning into a thing of, you know, is this going to keep going? And I felt like I reached my potential of doing everything. I did everything in there. I made fins. I glossed. I sanded. I glassed a little bit, but I didn't really do that very much. That was one of the things I didn't do there, you know, as much as everything else I did in there. And uh, another guy who worked there, his name was Dusty Simmons. He was a sander, and he actually did some of the board runs up the coast for, for natural art. Him and I, that was when the, the windsurfing thing started happening and in, in the late 80s, and actually mid-80s when windsurfing started catching on. And uh, Rich Price shaped a few, I shaped a few, but... It really wasn't going anywhere, and I, I got into windsurfing, and I started liking it. It's like, I really want to do this. So we started building natural art sailboards, but Pete didn't want to have anything to do with it. He was, like, against it. He didn't care about it and nothing about it. And so it was Dusty and I that got together and said, let's see if he, he'll let us build his boards and have our own company. So we started a corporation called Natural Art Sailboards, but we called it NAS Fiberglass as opposed to Natural Art Sailboards because he owned Natural Art name. We were just going to be a licensee to, to make them for him. Okay. So we started that in mid-'80s and did it right there at the Natural Art Factory and, and stayed with that for quite a while. And things started, you know, kind of going bad with... The payroll and money and they were having a lot of issues and it was hard to say what was going to happen and they were actually talking about downsizing the factory. Pete was looking to um, go to the more contract route, take Rich as a shaper and guys were going to be out of their jobs and 
some people knew about it, some people didn't know about it that were working there. We knew about it and we actually said, well, why don't we look for a place to build the sailboards at? So we went to another factory that was over on the beach side that Doug Wright owned from Rainbow Surfboards. And we rented space from him and built the sailboards there. And it was in that transition when things were going bad that we started thinking about, let's just do our own line, you know, let's just do our, you know, Ricky Carroll surfboards, you know. And uh, the corporate name of our company now is called R&D Surf. Well, I'm Ricky and he was Dusty, so that's where that name comes from. There's been a lot of talk and other things of, oh, you guys think your research and development or this and that. It was just Ricky and Dusty, and that's where the, the name of the corporation came from. I've always wondered that, too. Yeah. <laughs> I just assumed it was research right. and development. Yeah, most people did. And so uh, we just kind of decided, we were, let's, let's do this. Because we actually tried to um, get Pete to let us license the Pro Shape line. And I was shaping Pro Shapes at the time because Bob had moved on and he wasn't shaping anymore. C Shapes had gone, died and went by the wayside. And I was shaping Pro Shapes. And this was after the whole locomotion thing went through natural art. Locomotion oh, okay. came and went in the 80s with natural art and moved on to another uh, place. And I, so I lost all of that locomotion work I did. I shaped thousands of locomotion boards on the East Coast for natural art when they were the licensee. And then when that all went away, uh, we kind of resurrected the Pro Shapes line. And that's when they, he, he duly pulled in Shane Haran as a team rider. And so I started shaping boards for Shane Horan. So I was just kind of getting my name out there and people were just starting to hear me because any time anybody talked about or mentioned natural art, it was natural art, Pete Dooley and Rich Price. The Ricky Carroll wasn't mentioned, right. you right. know. Totally. Nobody knew who I was. I was just one of the shapers there. That, right. So. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. But you were the one that they chose to work with uh, Shane. That was another thing. That was a Rich Price thing that he didn't want to mess with doing those funky boards that he was riding the laser zap with the keel fin and stuff. He, Rich actually shaped the first few boards for Shane. Okay. He was shaping boards for uh, Richard Cram, and that was his other team rider from Australia. So Rich was more into the high-performance short boards. He wasn't into doing things that were kind of out there and different you know he was very regimented in his shaping you know he 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 could shape five six two square tails before lunch wow. you know and do them all exactly the same and be happy with it and just keep redo- redoing it. and that's that was his forte he could just mow out you know performance sports and you start that's why i got the long boards and the fun boards because he didn't want to stray of what he liked doing sure so when it wasn't working with him and shane that's when it just kind of got shifted over to me and uh so how is that relationship working with shane i would imagine just having an athlete of that caliber can help you kind of advance your craft yeah it did it did in two different ways one on the reputation side you know but the other way that it really helped in way shane and i really connected was the fact that i went through the whole sailboard route learned tons about rocker and you know just hydrodynamics and stuff that you a lot of surfboard shapers don't ever even really learn you know they 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 learn about shape trial and error this that copy this guy's board look at this this guy likes this but when you get into sailboarding the hydrodynamic part becomes such a big part of the the shape you're going so much faster um what about construction materials? Did that alter your surfboard? Yes, okay. that helped too because learning about carbon fiber, learning about uh, you know the rigidity of boards, stringers, all of that came from from windsurfing, right? Not from surfing. Oh, that, yeah. that windsurfing uh, whole sport of windsurfing, surfing was behind the eight ball for a long time in materials and construction where windsurfing was just passing them up with epoxy and everything that was going on i mentioned to you yesterday about um doing something with dave parmenter we were doing this like four-part board building series um like board building 101 and he was talking about he's into um single person canoeing right Uh now like these long distance inner island stuff in hawaii there's just a million more variables that you need to account for when you're building that craft and then just as the athlete you're surveying a lot vaster playing field and so it's fun for all its own reasons but he said really it also puts things into perspective as the board builder right you come back to board building and you go oh i see things just so much clearer now Exactly. You know, I thought that was so fascinating. Right. I would never have thought about that. Yeah, windsurfing did that for me. And then Shane did, too, because Shane was one of those free thinkers. You know, he, right. he thought out of the box and was not afraid to try things. I remember when the, the kind of squared off rail and the tail started happening. Uh, I remember uh, Shane, would, you know, traveled a lot. He would get boards from Rusty. He would get boards from uh, Rawson when he was in Hawaii. And we would make his boards as much as we could while he was on the tour. But, you know, he was always able to get boards from different shapers. And he came back to Florida, and uh, he had a board that uh, Rusty had shaped and that had that square rail on the tail. And he wanted to make a square-railed surfboard. Like, 
his idea was that that projection you were going to get out of the rail was just going to make the board go so much faster okay and we shaped the board with square i'm telling you square rails so 90 no degree tuck, 90 degree bottom edge okay. a little bit of a round off the top okay. edge and that's it and he went out and rode it and he could ride it i know most people would get on it and just face plant but okay. He could ride it, but he did say what it did was it came off the bottom, and once you got it pointing going up, it wanted to go up, and you couldn't change the direction. Okay. It was too directional of a board because the, the rail shape wouldn't allow that. But just doing that, learned so much about just rail shape in general and, and rockers and stuff. His wing keel board was a really flat rocker, and that keel fin had to be positioned at an attitude that made it not overplane or not drag the tail down and that positioning of the the keel had to do with the rocker and where you stood on the board and the planing surface and all that has to do with windsurfing it's all fascinating you know intertwined and i think i learned a ton from working with him and trying different things and learn about rockers and bottom shapes that most shapers have never even conceptualized you know how that works right that's really fascinating have you maintained any contact with them over the years lately i haven't but when i started um my company r&d surf in 91 uh it was soon after that that locomotion approached me about doing their boards again and we got the locomotion contract back and because of that i would go to Hawaii almost every winter and uh, shape some boards over there and go to you know their their sales meetings and stuff and Shane was still real active in surfing he wasn't surfing a tour anymore but you know I would see him over there uh, a lot um, but in the last 10 or 12 years I have very little contact with him but every once in a while there'll be an email or something you know here in I've recently discovered his Instagram account. Oh, yeah. It is so good. Yeah. It's really good. He was in the Azores for the uh, Masters event like right. a month or two ago. And he shoots a lot of video in selfie mode. So, uh -huh. like, it'll, the camera will be on him, and then he'll go and, like, wrap his arm around Tom Curran right. and just be like, hey, Tom, what do you think of the Azores? Right. And it's almost like he's running his own little um, right. interview, you know, news interview service on his yeah. Instagram account. It's really funny. He's hilarious. Yeah, too. he's a hilarious guy, and he was so far ahead of his time. Um, he he had the vision back. Well, I don't know how long ago it was, but he had the vision. He was surfing a contest here at New Smyrna. The waves were one foot junk, and you know the title's on the line, and he's surfing just one foot junk in New Smyrna. Like, why am I here, and why are we doing this? We should be in Tahiti somewhere or we should be at Jay Bay or we should be you know surfing good waves we're the best surfers in the world and he proposed this to the um, sanctioning body at the time I cannot remember if it was IPS at the time APS there were so many yeah. different changes in the professional surfing but he proposed why don't we go to these remote out-of-the-way places film the contest and beam it on satellite and people can watch it on satellite TV and everybody laughed at him and said there's no way that can happen it's amazing <laughs> yeah. that is amazing um, I wanted you 
to explain why licensing takes place. You said you got the locomotion contract. I don't think a lot of listeners understand that side of the business. Right. Yeah, it's it's not real complicated, but the the fact of shipping surfboards around the world, it's very expensive. You get damage. The logistics of getting boards from the West Coast to the East Coast and vice versa from Hawaii to the East Coast, the shipping cost just kills the sale. You know, it just makes it almost undoable, especially back when the licensing started. So a lot of companies, like Locomotion was one of the perfect examples. They would, uh, you know, they wouldn't rely, the Locomotion brand wasn't relied on one shaper. It was it was more on the brand. So they had multiple shapers, Pat Rawson being their very first shaper, going down, you know, between Wade Decoro and uh, Kim Purrington, you know, down the line, Chuck Andrus. They, they just had a lot of shapers. They would even have guys like uh, Al Merrick and Rusty would come to Hawaii for their, you know, annual surf trip, and they would go in a locomotion factory and shape boards, and there would be locomotions with Rusty logos on them and locomotions with Al Merrick logos on them. So they really promoted that thing that surfing, you know, surfboard brand can be as strong as, you know, just the name of the brand, not the shaper. And they, they really believed in that. So they actually started licensing people to build their boards in different regions when it was not so conducive to ship them there. So they had somebody in California do it for a while. California thing and the locomotion brand never panned out for some reason. Different people did it, different people tried it. It never stuck for some reason. But on the East Coast, it was very big. Okay. And locomotion had a big following. You yeah. Know? And it's a great way for somebody like you to build their business because um, it's a lot of work running through your factory, right? right. So you sure. can kind of make limited numbers of Ricky Carroll boards but run right. the bulk of your business right. through locomotions. And that's kind of funny you say that because when we started R&D Surf the first year, you know, it was difficult because we were coming out with a brand new brand right in the middle of, of a downswing right. in the surf industry. Companies were going out of business left and right. Brands were going away left and right. And here we are going to surf shops saying, hey, look at our new brand. And surf shop owners were looking at us like, are you crazy? You know, like, we don't need another brand right now. So we started pretty, uh, well, you know, one hand tied behind our back, cause, so to speak. And uh, it was um, it was, it was, was our very first trade show that we did the, the Surf Expo as R&D Surf. And we were there, we had our boards, my partner Dusty and I were there, and come walking up to the booth is Pat Rawson and Rusty Priestendorfer, and they're picking up my boards and they're looking at them. And we're sitting in the booth, just me and Dusty looking at each other, going, what are they doing, and why are they looking at my surfboards, you know? So they're looking and they're talking, and then Pat introduce himself to me and I, I knew who he was and he didn't have to but he goes and it was funny he goes you know the first thing he says to me he goes you know and I have a mutual friend and I said who's that and he goes uh, Shane Haran I said oh we started talking about Shane for a little bit and he goes well you used to shape the boards uh, at natural art for locomotion right and I said yeah I did you know I shaped a lot of them there and he goes well uh, we're looking for another East Coast 
shaper to do our brand over here because when Natural Art lost the locomotion licensee, it went to another company. Uh, Ron Roush was the guy who brought the whole licensee to Florida, and then he and Pete didn't get along at the end, and that's why it moved. It went to, and then it kind of died out, and they didn't keep it going. They weren't behind it, and. Um, so he asked me, are you interested in shaping locomotion boards? And I was like, yeah, I, I knew what it could do for me. And I could go out there on my name and go, Ricky Carroll's the East Coast licensee, not Natural Arts, the East Coast licensee. And I saw the value in that. So he brought me over to the locomotion booth and introduced me to Calvin, and who was in charge of the surfboard program at the time. And Lee Tanai was running the company. He was the CEO. And uh, Koji Manami was the owner of the company, actually. And it, it was after Locomotion had changed hands. Uh, so I remember Calvin asking me, you know, like when we were, he was kind of grilling me a little bit, like, what, what's in it for you? Why would you, why would you get behind this and push this brand when you have your own brand? Why, why would you do that? Because that's what happened with the last company that had it. They didn't push it, and they were almost using it to sell their brand. And he goes, why would you do something like that? You know, I don't understand, you know, what's the motivation, you know. And I said, because Locomotion's an international brand, and if I'm shaping it, it's going to give me international credibility right off the bat, and I, I can use that, and I wouldn't want to make it succeed. I wouldn't want to you know I would ride its coattails you mm -hmm. know and I told him that and he he liked the answer yeah and uh, you know we drew up a contract and I flew out to Hawaii right after the trade show and uh, we started doing them again and we were so behind it and the brand got so strong that in the first probably it was about 10 years the first 10 years of R&D surf we made three times more locomotion than we made our seaboards RC boards were there, they were getting out there, but Locomotion was such a big brand, it was so popular, it was almost like we were the Locomotion factory. You know, yeah. We built so many of them. That's what, one of the reasons we moved into this building that we're in now, we were all in the back building doing everything. We grew out of there with that Locomotion. It was just, you know, the numbers were increasing, increasing. We needed more space, so we moved into this building, and that was really largely to do the Locomotion. That's awesome. Um, I can envision nowadays with the license, if you license a brand or uh, a board label, they can just send you files. You can have those files come right. to the machine. So how did it work back at that? How are you? How are local motion boards different than Ricky Carroll boards? And how do you build to their specs? How do they manage quality control across right. multiple different factories? Yeah, the quality control is definitely uh, an issue, but it's not an issue if you you know they know that they're in a factory that builds quality boards. You know, so they just have to vet it all yeah, in advance. Right, and uh, that's one of the reasons I went to the North Shore every winter. You know, as working for Locomotion, they wanted me to come over and shape boards, see what they were doing, you know, work in their factory. So that was like a training for me and also a way for me to show them, you know, this is what I'm doing. And, yeah, you know, it just, it was a, a great uh, marriage because it, you know, it worked so well for so many years. The brand itself, you know, lost its steam after losing guys like Bruce Irons and stuff. And, the real story behind locomotion downsizing was the fact that it was owned by 
Manami Sports in Japan, in which Japan had that really crazy economy crash um, years ago. Manami Sports went bankrupt. They had so many loans out with the banks. They had so many stores. I think I had heard one time they had 65 stores in Japan, and Locomotion was giant in Japan. And so they lost all of that, went bankrupt. And the only reason Locomotion stayed going was because Locomotion Hawaii was in the U.S. company, even though Manami Sports owned it, it was uh, licensed or registered as a U.S. corporation, and they couldn't take that. Mm. And Koji Manami, Mr. Manami's son, he was the one that was running at the time, so he was able to stay in Hawaii and keep Locomotion going. But when that happened, they lost a lot of that income from the Locomotion brand, you know, that Hawaii didn't have all that extra money coming in from Manami Sports that was so big in Japan. So they lost the, the ability to sponsor guys like Bruce Irons and stuff like that. So they started losing their, you know, clout in the industry, started less ads, you know, less team riders. And, and it's, it's the story of so many surfboard companies after a certain amount of time, they cannot support the... The, I call it the hype that you have to put out there to keep yourself in the forefront. Yeah, and it's, it is just kind of overhead. You grow it to a point where you have a lot of overhead, and then if anything seizes up at any point, you can't pay your bills. Right. You know? uh, so back to the question, though, about how are locomotion sport boards different than the Ricky Carroll boards when you're making both of them? Yeah, it would, there were so, a lot of crossover, but I did try to use you know influences from, like, Pat Rawson and Wade DeCoro and the guys I looked up to that were shaping and shape them with that kind of look or feel but also still make them work on the East Coast conditions. So I had to put stuff in that we were already doing over here that we knew worked because you know there, there is a big thing about guys coming over from the West Coast or Hawaii with the boards that they ride over there with waves that have a little more power in the base of the wave or in Florida or on the east coast a lot of places the power is not in the base of the wave it's more in the mid face or even the top of the wave so the boards work differently I'm mm-hmm. not saying they don't work over here they work differently and some guys can manage to make them work and other guys could not mm-hmm. and so having somebody that shaped over here they were happy to have my influences for boards that were going to be sold on the east coast interesting it's like I almost had to be a chameleon when I went to Hawaii and think about when I shaped over there that I was shaping boards that were going to stay in Hawaii. So I couldn't do what I was used to doing over here. I had to shape two different styles of boards, you know. That's interesting. How does it work now? I know you have the license for Surfboards Hawaii and... Um, Donald Takayama. Takayama. Yeah. And those boards are done on the shaping machine. And so they, they're what, built to their right, specs. Right. Precisely. Right. And that's what the best one of the best things that shaping machine does if you have a shape that you like and works it copies it you know really exactly and you can reproduce that board time and time again without a shaper's influence changing the way the board looks or rides so right um for your own label ricky carroll surfboards um is that mainly distributed on the East Coast? Are you exporting at all? Do you go anywhere else and build those boards? It's mainly the East Coast. We do a little bit of Caribbean. Puerto Rico was big for a little while, but it's definitely 
you know, and that's just same thing. Exporting boards and shipping boards somewhere is expensive. We, we were getting a little bit over to Europe when uh, the dollar was weak and it, it made sense for them. But as things change economy, you know, the dollar gets stronger and then it's not, it doesn't make sense to ship boards over there. I want to go over there and shape and I want to go to Japan and shape. There's two places I haven't gone and shaped uh, and try to get some of that international business that I've been missing. And right. I've been so busy and so, you know, with my brand doing as well as it has, I've, I've, I've maxed myself out without having to travel. You yeah. know, I would like to travel and get my name out there more internationally, but I haven't been able to do that yet. Interesting. Um, how, what's your current relationship like with surfing? Are you still surfing regularly? And still surf regularly, not as much as I used to. Yeah. Two reasons, being busy and being here. Um, I, everybody says this and some people believe it, but I, I, I believe it. You know, it's, We have had the worst few years of surf in the last two, three years here in, on the East Coast. You know, it just hasn't been as consistent as I remember yeah. being able to surf. Uh, decent surf you know on a regular basis now it's like it's we talk about swells now remember that swell we had you know it's not like did you go surfing last week right. <laughs> you know <laughs> do you how often are you riding other people's boards not as much i i used to always try to do that it was one of the things as a shaper i think it's a great thing to do is ride somebody else's board um anytime i travel in surf, you know, if I can find somebody, I always want them to ride my board. I'll switch boards when somebody wants to, just to get on something else and then let them ride my board too. If you could order a board from anybody on the planet, what would you order? My surfing's changed so much. I'd probably ride a longboard more than anything just because of where we're at and the surf we surf. You know, if I was surfing, you know, good surf, I'd definitely be riding a step up board, that, but more in the mid range style just for something that catches waves easy and uh, gets in and then I can still perform at surf not like I used to but I need a wave to do it on yeah what <laughs> would you order then um, like is there any shapers that you really revere that you would love to get a board from well there's a lot of shapers I respect but I haven't ridden many of their boards to, to say that you know that's who I would want to shape a board you know get a board from you know yeah. so it's hard it's a hard question um you know, um, I I remember being in Hawaii and riding some of Pat's boards, and always respect you know the way that he's been able to tune into the you know the North Shore conditions you know and, yeah. and have a board that you can feel comfortable on and safe. Yeah. Um, are there any shapers, up and coming shapers in this area that listeners should be aware of? Whose work do you see that you're like really impressed with? And maybe not even in this area, maybe right. just on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of new guys and new faces that, you know, they're, they're marketing themselves that way on Instagram and, and social media and uh, not like how we came up, you know, where we had to build boards, put them in the car and drive them to the shops and, and really, you know, beg to get rack space. Now it's at the whole landscape has changed where you can just start an account and Instagram and immediately people around the world think you have a, a 
thriving business, whether you do or not. Right. <laughs> and so it's very uh, watered down, and, and it's hard to tell who's good and who's not by looking on the internet. You know, if there's anybody can make a decent looking board and take a picture of it and go, look what I made. But can they shape you a board that works? Can you know? Can they shape what you want? Uh, and, and are they experienced enough to be able to shape uh, different? types of boards like that right. a lot of guys get locked into I made this board that works and so I base everything around it and that's the way I shape and that's what I'm going to shape and that's what you're going to get like it or yeah. not. <laughs> and, um, but back to your question the up and coming guys there's quite a few of them but there's it's hard to know which ones are shaping off the machine which ones are actually shaping by hand and you know I'm always going to hand it to the guy that hand shapes over the machine guy uh, not that machines are bad to use but don't start that way learn how to shape first and then use the machine to you know grow your business or grow your numbers right the final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode the last one the last surfboard that you rode what are you currently riding right now it's a, a board I call my performance longboard or some people call it the PLB, and it's um, it's a very unique shape. And what's kind of different about it is is the rocker. It's uh, something I kind of came across years ago, and uh, I shaped the first one for myself with this particular rocker almost 20 years ago. Hmm. And believe it or not, I had it scanned at KKL. Uh, in California and uh, it was one of my first three surfboards that I had scanned. I had a longboard scan, I had like an egg shaped scan and I had a shortboard scan and I shaped three boards, I scanned them, started getting boards you know shipped over from the shaping machine to to start doing more numbers and that board in 20 something years hasn't changed and I still ride that same program. Wow. And what length and what fin setup? Um, that has changed. It's nine foot is what I ride most of the time. And I'm riding it strictly as a quad. I don't even have a center box in it anymore. Wow. And I went to the quad ring a long time ago when quads first came out. And we were glassing little tiny fins behind the front leading fins, you know, leaving the center box in the, in the board. And we were glassing on these little quad trailer fins. and as they got a little more refined started riding more quads as uh, my, my short board I, I like that quad twin kind of loose feel I always rode boards like that you know in competition and growing up as a kid I like that quad loose but then they kind of went through this big change where everybody was saying the quad had to have a wider tail straighter outline and stuff and I didn't like those boards I did, to me they didn't surf the way I wanted to surf and they kind of strayed away from the quads and stayed with the thrusters for quite a long time. And it wasn't until a few more team riders and stuff were asking for quad longboards. And I was like, yeah, quad longboard's not going to work. You know, it just, just doesn't make sense to me at the time. Started making some for people, and they kept saying, man, I love this board, I love this board, you got to ride it. And then I started, you know, putting fins on from what I'd seen and heard other people were doing. And as I rode the boards that I first did, I didn't like them. I just didn't like them. And so 
I don't know if you, you've probably heard this before, you can't make a board as a thruster and a quad because the fin placement's going to be wrong. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. And I'll tell you why. Because all my boards were thrusters at the time or two plus one long boards. And I took my existing boards that I was riding after trying to shape a quad and ride a quad that I didn't like. And I went back to my board that I really liked and said, let's put rear trailer fins in this thruster and see if we can make that work. And it took a couple tries of positioning to where I liked it. And I didn't change my front fins. I left the front thruster fins the same, added the quad boxes and kept messing with the rear fins and the rear placement. And I did the same thing on my two plus one longboard. Kept the front fins exactly the same place I ride as a two plus one and messed with the back fins, the quad fins as extras. And like I said, right now my longboard doesn't have a center box. <laughs> so I, I hate to admit my naivete, but I've never, I can't remember seeing a quad longboard before. Right. I've never ridden one yeah. for sure. It's, what, how does it operate differently? What I like about it is, I, and I particularly like to keep my rear fins out, uh, out close to the rail. Okay. Like where a lot of guys, you'll see quads, the back fins are further in, you know, and it kind of is like in between a thruster and a real quad, and what I call a real quad, of something that you're going to only ride as a quad, you're never going to ride it as a thruster. And having those fins out on the rail gives you the ability to have way more control um, of your outside fins and your rail. So as you get the board up on rail and those outside fins are almost coming out of the water, you've got two fins to work off that are on the rail. And I always feel that surfing off the rail, the rail can act as a fin too. And, and having that control of the board off the rail really allows me to surf the way I want. And it just, it's looser, but it's still enough drive that, uh, it's like having two boards you know it's like once you get that fin to set and turn you're turning off of one side of the board and it just turns so much quicker mm. it reacts so much quicker but then when the other fins kick in and you come back and you know come off the top and go the other way it just seems to lock in a lot better um, we learned a lot in windsurfing with canard fin i don't know if you know what that is with the little fin in front of the the main fin because when a fin cavitates air comes off the rail of the board somewhere gets on that fin and creates an air pocket around or behind the fin so now the fin has no stability and then it starts to spin out that's what cavitation is boats do it sailboards did it and that canard fin corrected that cavitation a lot quicker and then they went into split fins and they went into fins where they had a a uh, slot in it you know and Rusty came up with that. I don't know if he came up with it, but he was one of the big proponents of the Twinser. If you remember yep. that, that little canard fin in front of the twin fin. I rode those for a long time. I loved them. And it reconnected or grabbed. So you could actually get the board to almost slide, but it wouldn't slide out uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. it, would cut, it would come back and grab and correct itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what a quad, if it's set up properly, should do. Mm -hmm. So now you have a board that you can push to higher turning limits and know that if you want to pull it back, you can pull it back and it's not going to slide out uncontrollably. Fascinating. I Fins are such a complicated topic and there's so much, many variables oh, yeah. based on 
other design factors in the board that you put them on. Right. And but it's like I really want to devote time and attention to discussing it more thoroughly because um, I think people have a bad experience on a board and they write it off. But of course, it could just be the fin setup, and off now you could swap fins out and stuff and correct a lot of the issues. Right. But there's just a lot. It's a lot of confusion for me. Sure, and for everybody, and I, I hear it all the time. I tried a quad, I didn't like it. Then, well, you might have had the wrong fin configuration. You might have had the wrong fin setup. Exactly. Uh, so there's so many variables to it, like you said, that you can't always hit it, you know, right on the head the first time you put a set of fins in your board and try it. So it really does take experimentation. Yeah. One of the boards that I rode was one of my favorite kind of a stable my quiver was a I, I called a rocket fish it was a thruster and that was one of the boards I experimented on switching to quads and I routed the fins in where I thought they should go based on what other people were doing and I didn't like it mm. I routed them the boxes out and I put them in another place and I routed them out and I put them in another place and by moving the fins around on the same board that I'd been riding, that I'd been used to, know how I wanted it to feel, that's where I felt like I made the quad work with the front fin and the thruster placement. Because everybody says, not everybody, but a lot of people say, yeah, a thruster's this placement and a quad's that placement. And I found a way to make it work where you could use both. Good for you. I, I guess it's there's so many, or there's so much confusion that part of me just wants to say, glass on something that'll just generally work right. for most conditions but i've also had the epiphany moments where i mix things up and then get like a magic board right. that feels right. insane so I, I feel now i gotta chase that that high definitely know? where the fin box systems changed surfing a lot and changed you know when we, we were doing all glass ons there were plenty of guys that got boards this board sucks <laughs> get a new board and if they had just changed their fins they you know I remember tons of times when the thruster came out here on the East Coast, like you said, the waves are different, less power. Well, there were plenty of guys getting thrusters and just hating them at first because mm -hmm. they were too stiff. And, they, and we were taking boards that had glass on thrusters and we were grinding the fins down in the back, you know, reshaping them while they were still glassed on the board, cutting them down, refoiling them, reshaping them to make a smaller trailer fin, which worked better in our conditions, loosen the board up. And a lot of that had to do with the rocker that we were using at the time on boards and the placement. We were off on our placement on thrusters when they first came out. Yeah. Worked great at Bell's Beach <laughs> right? here on the East Coast. They didn't work because it was too stiff, too drivey of a board for the waves we were surfing on it. So we had to have a, almost a different thruster placement or even thruster size fin. And that became a very common thing for a while where you had two glass on front fins and you had a fin box in the back to where you could change your fin out or move it forward, cluster the fins closer together and people could kind of get the board feel the way they like. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. What lies ahead I have no under my feet, baby, grass is growing. It's time to move on. Time to get going. 
Thank you very kindly, Ricky Carroll, and everybody in Brevard County for letting me swing through and uh, talk story with a few of your people. Thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with a friend. That is how this show grows. You can find everything that we discussed on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, including photos of Ricky's surfboards. You should also reach out to him and give him a follow on social media. Let him know what you thought of this episode. That always goes a long way for our guests. Thank you for doing that. I think this is about all that my recovering voice can handle for now. So I'm going to crawl back into bed and try to recover for my final leg of my Australia trip. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. Until then, this is David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Sometime later, getting the words wrong, wasting the meaning, losing the right. It's nauseous adrenaline, breaking up a dogfight like a deer in the headlights. Frozen in real time, I'm losing my mind. It's time to move on, time to get going. What lies ahead, I have no way of knowing. But under my feet, baby, grass is growing. It's time to move on, it's time to get going. Yeah.